0: As I said, from the baptistry, I think we could uh, sing some songs and fellowship together and go home having uh, our hearts full that we had heard the gospel. Uh, But we thank the Lord for the opportunity to continue to open his word. Uh, Sometimes things converge in strange ways in my life. I say strange from my perspective, but I'm sure they're providential. Uh, But we've gotten to John 17 in our uh, working through the Gospel of John, uh, just so happens on the morning that a baptism is happening, uh, which if John, in chapter 17, uh, in the words of Christ in there, really get to the root or the heart of what is symbolized by what we've done this morning. Uh, and it just seems like a, a profound timing on the part of the Lord's uh, work here. Uh, as I say, we're in John chapter 17, Uh, I've kind of wrestled with this all week, how quickly to move through this. Uh, And I finally come to the conclusion, I think I want to just do verses 1 through 5 this morning and then work through that as slowly as we can. I may just kind of give an overview uh, of verses 1 through 26, all of chapter 17, but I want to come back and just look at the verse 5 verses uh, particularly. Uh, One of the things that I noticed early in my Christian life was uh, is reading through the gospels and the epistles how often it seemed like they would use the phrase in Christ or uh, with Christ in a, very, uh, in a very unique way. And I, all my life, uh, I've been in cars, uh, I've been in, in houses, uh, I've been in trouble. <laughs> uh, I've been in a lot of things, but I've never described, heard described a relationship with another person as being in that person. I was married to my wife, but I wasn't in my wife, nor was my wife in me relationally. And so it just struck me as unique early in my Christian life. Why does he keep saying in Christ? Why does Paul repeat some variation of that nearly 150 times, I've counted throughout the epistles? Why is that so important? And why? With the two ordinances of all the things the Lord could have commanded of his church down through the ages, why would the two that he communicates, communicate this idea of in or this union? It's what we've just demonstrated here is there's the union of the believer with Christ, whereby he goes down into death with Christ and is raised from the dead with Christ to a new life. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are, we are indicating the same thing. We are taking the bread, which is the body of Christ, and we are ingesting it, uh, thereby be showing a oneness or a, a union with the body of Christ, and so the blood of Christ as well. So we have two ordinances for the church, all speaking, both speaking of union Uh, The Catholic Church, I think, even holds, uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds marriage as one of them. I don't know that it's an ordinance because all people wouldn't be able to do it, but but it certainly does rank highly because it's about union as well, a union of husband and wife. So why would we have all these references to union and then Paul be using the phrases in Christ so often? Unless there was something critical about that union. In fact, I believe John 17, Jesus reveals to some degree and to a great degree the, the mysteries of the high priestly ministry of Christ. In fact, some scholars uh, parallel Jesus' discourse in the upper room to his uh, making his way to Jerusalem and ultimately outside the gate in Jerusalem to the high priestly role in the Old Testament. Even his prayer here being a high priestly prayer. This is... By the way, this is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We often hear the other prayer, but that's the Lord teaching us to pray. Uh, I was reading this week, and someone, I can't remember who it was, but they said it would be wrong for Jesus to pray the Lord's Prayer that he taught us to pray, for he says in that prayer, forgive us of our sins, our debts. Jesus had no sin nor any debt. And so it would have been wrong for Jesus to pray the prayer that he taught us to pray, but it, wouldn't be wrong, it would be wrong for us to pray in some ways in the way he's praying here. Because he says stunning things like what is mine is his and what is his is mine. That means it's ours. I possess what God possesses. For you and I to say that in some ways would be heresy, if not blasphemy. We are not God. <laughs> And so all that is God's is Christ, he says, and all that is Christ is the Father's. And so there's this union described here. That's why this union is so important. And let me just say, without it, you are not saved. You don't obtain your way into it by some work. I was sharing with the kids this morning that uh, all the symbolism that would be on display this morning and asking them, what, is this, what does this symbolize? And I wonder sometimes if they've ever watched baptism really closely and understood that the way we do baptism, everything we're doing has some relation or some, uh, some relation to the actual reality of how a man is born again, even down to the point that we don't ask folks to baptize themselves. We don't put them in the water and say, okay, on the count of three, just go under. We want them to throw themselves as it is into the arms of another. And in that embrace, they go down into death and into the water. And they, by the same embrace, they come up out of the water. There's meaning in that. And it would, it would help a lot of heresy in our day. And, and even in the past, if folks would understand the significance of the symbol. No, we don't elevate water baptism to the point of salvation, but everything it signifies is crucial to salvation. And that's essentially what we've observed here. And Nowhere, in many ways, nowhere other than the cross and in the resurrection does the glory of God in the face of Christ shine forth like John 17. I mean, it's really stunning if you slow down and think about it. So let's read these 26 verses and we'll come back and concentrate on the first five. Jesus spoke these things. By the way, uh, it is believed here that he's somewhere uh, perhaps in the Kidron Valley heading towards Gethsemane. So, So they've left the upper room at this point and they're walking along. And somewhere along this journey towards the cross, Jesus pauses and looks to the heavens, looks to the Father, lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you by the way listen to the exchange here you would almost get confused because there's such a there's such a uh, reciprocality or however you say the word involved here verse 2 even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to you, come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All the things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you had given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves." I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world. I, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you and me, believer, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. They now, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is, as it were, stepping into the holy of holies. Isaiah, seeing a similar glory, fell face down, and cried woe is me for I am undone and a man of unclean lips father it is a a similar experience uh, before us today and so we ask that we might be mindful in these moments of our mediator Christ of the Christ who brings us into your presence uh, in an accepting way father with a righteousness that covers us and brings us into your presence so help us this morning Father, I pray that our hearts will be raised above the, the temporal and the worldly and the fleshly desires that are always competing for our devotion in this world. And even, even if it's for just this morning, Lord, raise us up above this and help us see over the horizon to see the glory of Christ, which the devil and the God of this world has been so wont to blind us to all of our days we ask these things for Christ's sake for his glory and in his name amen i was kind of going through the prayer and there's so much said in regards to what jesus says and i was trying to reduce it down what are the prayer what are the prayers of christ here in their kernel form without the explanation without the without the implications just the base prayer if i could reduce these down and say okay what exactly did he pray in summarized form It was interesting, but in regards to himself, he prays simply two things, glorify your son and glorify me together with yourself. In regards to his apostles and to some degree, some overlap to we who believe through their word, but distinctly for the apostles, he prays three things, keep them in your name, keep them from the evil one, And sanctify them in the truth, which is, he says, your word. Three prayers for you and I in regards to the apostles that we can share in some way with them, if not with the distinction that they have as apostles. He did that in a very distinct, specific way in their lives. He does the same in our lives, but not in the specific way that he does in our lives. So three basic prayers for the disciples or the apostles. And particularly for we who believed, he prays two things, that they may all be one in us, he says, in verse 21 and in verse 24, that they also whom you have given me be with me, speaking there of their future glory. Now, as I said, there's some overlap between the apostles and those who believe through their word. So, so you could bunch all those together and say that there were one, two, three, four, five prayers in kernel form for believers and two on behalf of Christ Himself listed here. Now, where we, where we walk out into the mysterious, stunning glory is in His descriptions of these things just here. You now, I'll take some passages from the epistles as well, but it's just absolutely stunning. So beginning in verse 1, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is that the hour... Had come. It had been coming. In fact, in the earlier chapters, he says, this is the hour for which I've come into the world. You remember as we covered that he says, the hour has come. What should I say? Deliver me from this hour? No, I'm not going to say that. This is the very reason I've come into the world. So I'm not going to push this hour away. It's coming. I'm not going to avoid this hour. Oftentimes he would speak to folks and he would go away unscathed. And they wanted to harm him and take him into a custody. But what does it always say? But his hour had not yet come and he slipped away from him, them. But the hour had been coming and now as they come from the upper room and begin to go down into the Kidron Valley and, and head towards the mountain of Gethsemane and onward to Jerusalem to be crucified outside the gate there from Jerusalem, the hour had been coming and now it was near and now it was mere hours away. So Jesus begins by reminding us here or reminding them, that hour that I came into the world for, it is upon us. I'm struck, struck by the fact that at the end of chapter 16 he tells them after they say I have believed we have believed he says to them oh have you believed. I'm telling you that in a matter of hours, you will be scattered like sheep. Yet you say now you have believed. But then on the other side of this, you will understand what believing involves. But right now, you believe with all the capacity of the flesh to do so. And whatever assistance the Holy Spirit alongside you has enabled you. But you do not believe to the point of flying away when the threat is there. Well, the threat's now upon them. The hour... Has arrived. I I thought this week. I can't imagine what I'd be thinking if I knew in detail as Christ did what was about to unfold in my life and upon my body and in my spirit and soul in the next three hours. I was reading not too long ago and had read in the past but had forgotten but even in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says Jesus sweat as it were drops of blood and I I talked to someone who knew about those things and my first My first taste of that reality was I visited someone in the hospital whose body had begun to retain fluid. And their body was under this great distress. And when I went into the ICU room there and they were all hooked up to the machines and they were so swollen that I barely recognized them. And I noticed that the sheets were all tinged pink. And I remember thinking to myself, why are the sheets pink? I've been in a lot of hospitals and I've never seen pink sheets. And it began to dawn on me that they were actually suffering from a medical condition in which the body is so distressed that it bleeds over into the pores and the pores actually sweat blood and sweat out upon those sheets. And I was always stunned that when Jesus was in Gethsemane, it says that he was sweating under that sort of duress. His hour had come. It was there. And so this is when He speaks. So everything in the spirit and soul and the humanity and the, everything is coming to its ultimate place here. And so Jesus in that moment with the hour upon them lifts His eyes to the Father and He begins to pray. And first out of His mouth is this prayer, Glorify Your Son. You could do a series of messages and write volumes of commentaries on exactly what this is. I was looking up some definitions just to help me grasp uh, our use of the word glory. I know there is a biblical use, but there is some overlap here. But one definition was this, to glorify as a verb is to reveal or demonstrate the majesty and splendor of dot, dot, dot. A person, a thing. But that's a general definition. To demonstrate or reveal the splendor and majesty. Another one was this. To cause to be or treat as being more splendid and excellent, etc. Than would normally be considered. Let me just say here. This is what 2 Corinthians identifies as the problem in this world. You look at Jesus and you see something. And you may even see something that you think warrants some admiration. But there is a God in this world whose whose goal is to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they can look at this Jesus and not see the the essential reality of who He is. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. He's a charitable worker. He's He's a charitable ministry person. The devil is fine if you see him in those ways. In fact, He is blinded to the eyes of your understanding so that you might see them that way. What is it that they don't see? They don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here it is last hour with the cross before him, Gethsemane, uh, the means through which he's going to the cross. Here this hour, hours before he is to lay down his life on our behalf, he is saying to the Father, Father, in this moment, glorify your Son. If I could put it into these words, Father, in this moment, in this event, reveal and demonstrate the splendor, your splendor and your majesty and that of the Son. Let them see now upon the cross who it is that is going to the cross. It's amazing to me, but even the centurion—you remember the Roman centurion, a man over over a hundred men—at the at the death of the, upon the cross, and all of a sudden the earthquakes and the and the storms dark or the it darkens and it's, it's darkness over all the earth and the earth trembles and the and the. Centurion himself looks up and sees Christ upon the cross. And what does he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. That's the glory, I think, in part that Christ is asking for. Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. Let it be shown in this hour that I have come down to accomplish your will. Let me read Philippians. You hear me quote it often, but it's one of my favorite passages in Philippians 2 verse 5 have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus listen to this who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or some translations say cling to but he emptied himself or set aside this right taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross now what's stunning is this, for this reason, for this reason also God, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on those who are in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think he's praying here, Father, let that be on display here. Through the cross, let me go upon the cross. Let me finish the work that you have called for me to do in this world, but don't let them look upon the cross and and don't let them see a, a, a mere man dying for some sin. Let them see this. This one who thought equality with God was not something to be hung on to, but set aside his independent right to exercise that deity and take upon himself human flesh and walk in obedience to the Father, even to the point of being crucified on the cross in the most horrendous way. Let them see in this moment my glory. Because that is his glory. I was reading an interesting article and I never thought about this. But did you know Jesus has a distinct glory here? The Father cannot say He was fully Father, fully God, and fully man. The Son, the Spirit cannot say He was fully God and fully man. Only Jesus Christ can say He is fully God and fully man. That's a, that is a singular glory that, that belongs to Christ alone. And so he's saying here, let the God-man go to the cross and there display his identity as the glorious God incarnate. That's amazing stuff. And Jesus, just before that hour, knows that it, that it is that this hour that the glory will be displayed in its clearest form to this world. I couldn't help but thinking about Isaiah 53 and the whole passage of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant who would yield himself up. Isaiah begins that passage by saying, who has believed our report? Who has believed this? And to whom has the arm or the strength of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on to say, here he is, but but you don't see him. You won't acknowledge Him, but He's been revealed by the, by the grace of God. You see Him as the good report and by the strength of God manifest in Christ. In fact, whenever Isaiah experienced his, had his experience in the temple there and, the, and, it, and, and everything shuddered there and the, the glory of His train filled the temple, I believe, according to John's own words here, what he saw then was not God in His full form, but he saw Christ. The manifestation of the glory of God in the temple there. In fact, John says that. He said, Isaiah said this because he's seen his day. He saw Christ's glory there in the temple. And so he says, who will believe that report? This This is the hour in which that man, that one, had come to the earth and was going upon the cross. The display of the glory of God in this person, Christ. And so Jesus says... Glorify your Son. Something that struck me this week, and I'll probably come back to this at Easter, but you remember when Jesus is saying continually by the language there, Father, forgive them. The indication is he kept on saying that as they were driving the spikes into him and as they were lifting him into place on the cross and, and as he was suffering and bleeding from the scourging and all those things. All alone, maybe under his breath or barely breathing, he was saying, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them. And that strikes me and it has a long time in the past that if he knows what is involved in their forgiveness... He is asking for the full weight of the sin they're committing against God incarnate to land upon Him in that moment. That's stunning. (laughs) That's not like you hurting me and, and me saying, God, forgive them. This is God in the flesh being wounded and sinned against by those who hated Him and Him all the while saying to them, Lord, bring upon me all that is due them for this heinous sin. That's exactly what was happening on behalf of those whom he says later God has given him. I thought in some way it is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. This is the seed. It's been unfolding down through the generations But all the way back in the beginning, as an encouragement to Adam and Eve, our mother and father, as it were, it was an encouragement to them. It's going to be a long time and it's going to be a hard way to go. But somewhere down the line, there is a seed coming from the woman who himself will crush the head of the serpent. Although the serpent will wound his heel, this is the hour. This is the seed This crucifying is the bruising of the heel and the effect of it is the crushing of the one who has the power of sin. This is the hour and this is the display of the glory of Christ. And Jesus says, Father, glorify your son here. And the expense of the display of that glory was embraced by Christ himself. Essentially by his suffering of the cross, he's asking that the display of the glory of the son for who he is. As I said, the centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. His second prayer in that first few verses, that your Son may glorify you. So now in the same event, in the same activity that is displaying of the glory of the Son, the Son recognizes that in the fulfilling of that, He will also be displaying the glory of the Father. That's stunning in and of itself. This is the glorifying of the Son is necessary for the glorifying of the Father. What's going to be witnessed in in regards to the sacrifice and the death and resurrection of the Son is critical for you to see the glory of the Father. This is, in fact, the glory of the Father on display, the glory, glory of God on display. Several things, Romans 5, 8 through 9, I won't go to the passage, but you know there in this God displays His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So upon the cross, while the Son is being glorified, then we are also being notified in that moment of the love of the Father that would send His Son to die for us while we were yet rebels and enemies against God. So, what's on display here is the majestic love of God, the sovereign, full of grace and mercy love of God on display right here on the cross before you. The Son, in the display of his, the Father, in displaying the glory of the Son, is at the same time through that display pointing back or directing back to himself the glory of the Father. So, the Father and the Son's glory are intermingled in this same event. I don't think the glory of the Father is displayed singularly in the resurrection. It is confirmed in the resurrection. But the glory of the Father can be seen right there upon the cross. Displayed through Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 when it speaks of us being dead in our trespasses and sin. It says of God in that moment that He was rich in His mercy and and great in His love toward us. And that Christ died for sinners. So the dying of Christ upon the cross is a display of the great mercies of God and the great love of God extended towards us when we were unworthy in any respect whatsoever of such a love and of such a mercy. Christ there being the glory of Christ there on display was also glorifying the Father who through Him was extending and demonstrating the glory of His mercy and of His grace. Ephesians, all through the first chapter of Ephesians, why is all this happening? For the praise of the glory of His grace. This is, what, this is what they can't see in the face of Christ. They look at the suffering, but they don't behold the glory of Christ and thereby cannot behold the glory of the Father. And so they're blinded to the reality of that. And Jesus is reduced to some minister in this world, not to the glorious Son of God, the glorious God incarnate. He's not that to the world. He's not that at all. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, to me is one of the most, the most indicative of the passages in regards to what God, how God is being glorified upon the cross. Listen to this. begins chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe. For it, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now listen to this. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen. This Jesus is who He's talking about. Whom, this Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now this, He did this to demonstrate his righteousness the father's (laughs) he goes further to say to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be here's the passage both just and the justifier (laughs) that's just stunning in the same event God is glorified as righteous, without without measure, infinitely righteous. And in the very same demonstration, He is demonstrated as merciful through this one demonstration of Christ. That's the glory of God. Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son so that He may glorify you. Let them see me hanging upon the cross and understand that what they are looking at is a declaration of the infinite justice and mercy of God Almighty. What we would call two bookends of one uh, one nature. You see both on display upon the cross. This is what Jesus is praying for among other things in regards to the glory of God amazing even as you he says in verse 2 i had it this way glory of the son in these passages if you look one through five the glory of the son in that he has authority over all flesh to give eternal life the glory of the father he is giving the authority and the ones to whom are given eternal life in other words, he's given both the authority to Christ and the ones to, by whom the authority will bring him into eternal life. So the Father is giving authority over all flesh to give eternal life. The Son is giving the eternal life through that authority given to him by the Father. And then in verse 3, you see what it is that is giving eternal life. Uh, it's funny to me, but I've noticed this about us, but we emphasize the, the duration here. In other words, the glory of Christ is that I live forever. I have a long, enduring, never-ending life. Well, that was only a blessing if if there's a different life. I mean, you remember, they were cast out of the garden and there was a a cherub there with a flaming sword to prevent them from entering back into the garden and that was for a specific reason. Because in this fallen state, were they to enter back into the garden and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever in this this, this degraded state, would not be merciful. The flaming sword was a merciful obstacle for them having life in this condition. So I say to you, duration is not the emphasis here, it is life. In a completely different way. I don't know about you, but in my fallenness before Christ, I don't want to live forever that way because I was miserable after 29 years to the point of wanting to end that life. Why would I want it to go on forever? But oh, now I want it to go on forever because now it is life. So we emphasize that. Jesus says something striking to that idea of duration here because He says, He he poses in the hearing of the disciples and the apostles here, this is eternal life. Not that you live forever, but that you know the one true God and Christ whom He sent. That's that's what constitutes life. And that's exactly what He's going to the cross to purchase for you and I in that same event that's what's ahead of us by the way as believers Yes, it's enduring forever because having been joined to Christ and Christ never dying, then we cannot be separated from Christ according to Romans chapter 8. So I'm united with Christ and through Christ with the Godhead now for all of eternity to worship and to praise Him for the glory of His grace all throughout eternity. But what's glorious about that is is the reality and the knowing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the fullest measure possible and since they are infinite in their glory there will never be an exhaustion of the beholding of the glory of god i think about this often can you imagine take your most your most god revealing moment in your christian life you were at the scriptures and you had been struggling over something perhaps for years even uh, maybe decades And someday you have the Bible open and it comes together just as clearly to you. And you scratch your head and you wonder, why didn't I see this? And at that same moment your heart is lifted up as it were from this world. And for a moment you taste of the glories of Christ. Well, eternal life is that experience manifold infinitely more powerful and more glorious. All of the days of eternity, every day will be a fuller experience of the glories of God. Now you tell me why I would want to hang on to this life to the point of denying God or or denying Christ in my life. There's no reason for the believer if we grasp what Christ is saying here. Not saying we want to end life, but I'm saying we live life with the hope underneath us, and the foundation of the hope that that's what's ahead of us. This is our enduring the joy, enduring the cross, looking forward to the joy. And so he says, "This is eternal life that they may know you, that only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." I think in verses four through five. You see in some ways both the, glory, the Son glorified the Father by His earthly work. But you also see verse 5, the Father glorifying the Son by bringing Him back to the glory which He enjoyed before the foundation of the world. This is a, this is a, clear, a clear declaration of the deity of Christ. In other words, I've come down from the Father. I have accomplished the work. This is the way I glorify the Father by accomplishing what He has sent me to do. Having accomplished that, I'm going back to the Father now to be restored to the glory that I knew from all of eternity before. I'm not going to a new glory. I'm going back to the glory I always had. He's not gaining glory by the cross. He's displaying it, what he has always been His already. This is our Christ. This is is why leading up to Resurrection Sunday, this is what is taking place there. To me, the most sobering times in all of the Gospels are the birth of Christ and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The birth of Christ because the whole world seems oblivious to who it is that has come to this world in human flesh. I mean the angels saw it, they praised God, they said glory to God, the highest glory to God, evident right here in the manger. And most of the world didn't realize that. And now we come to the cross and they see Him hanging up on the cross and the ones who ought to have known the most in regards to Christ were saying, let Him come down now, then we'll believe Him. And it's the same man, God-man, hanging upon the cross. And if He doesn't go there then the work doesn't get accomplished and you and I will live in our illusion to the end of our days and spend an eternity in hell because there has been no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. Period. That is the gospel. That's why I said, if you listen and watch closely the symbolism that will happen back here in this baptismal pool this morning, you can go home with your heart soaring because you have seen the heart of what the gospel is. It is to take a dead man, tie yourself to him, take him down into death, and bring him back up to new life. And to guarantee that that embrace doesn't end when you walk out of the baptistry. He has forever has embraced you now. And where he goes, he says later on, I will that they be with me where I am. That's a prayer you can guarantee will be answered. Because for you not to be where he is will be for you to have been separated from Christ. Which Paul says in Romans 8 is impossible having been joined to him. This is is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There is so much on display here, especially he begins to get into chapter 6, for, and verse 6, and following him, he begins to zero down to his apostles. But boy, what a foundation he has laid here. My understanding, by the way, of the high priestly duty was he would come into the holiest of holies, one priest once a year from Aaron's family. And when he came into there, he would offer the sacrifice, blood, obviously, and then incense, which we understand in other places is symbolic of the prayers. And so he comes in and offers those, and the first prayer that he made traditionally was for uh, the sons of Aaron, the high priestly class. And then the second prayer he made was for the, for the priestly class, the Levites in general. So he prayed, he came in first of all, the high priest did a pray prayer for himself, then the family of Aaron, and then the, then the Levites in general, because they were the ones assigned to the temple. And that's the pattern it seems that Christ is following here. He's going into the holiest of holies, not on some earthly temple. He's going into the real deal holiest of holies. And he's taking with him his own blood and not the blood of the calves. And he's not having an incense censer to symbolize prayer. Here he's offering up that prayer. And he prays first and foremost for himself in this moment. And secondly, for the apostles, the twelve. If you remember, the high priest came in, uh, the temple was set amongst the tribes, and all the twelve tribes were encamped all around the temple. And that, into that temple the high priest went. Here's Jesus surrounded by the twelve or the eleven, Judas having gone out apostles. And he's walking now into the holiest of holies, offering up his blood and his prayers, and praying for himself to begin with, and then distinctly for his apostles, the twelve and then through them to us, all the priestly line, as it were, in Christ. This is a glorious, all of Scripture is glorious, but this is particularly glorious of Christ. It It is essentially by the Spirit and by the truth of God, God's removing the veil for us to look at Christ and behold in Him the glory of God. In fact, Paul says in that same passage, the glory, the light of the glory of the gospel. On display in Christ. What a God. What a God. Uniquely, what a Christ. God in human flesh. Entered into this world all the way to the cross in obedience and longing in that moment that the Son's glory would be shown forth so that through the shining forth of that glory upon the cross that all hearts would direct back to the glory of God, the glory of the Father. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. What we're reading was exactly what the apostles recorded for which Jesus equipped them with the Holy Spirit and by his own ministry. So essentially we have before us the very words of Christ assuring us who have believed through their word not only of our future but Father of what was taking place in the purchase of our souls. I pray that hearts have been moved to see you more clearly that Christ has been exalted. Lord I pray that no one leaves this room today with a the same or a lower view of Christ but that it has been raised to some degree which itself is infinitely short of what he is worthy of have your way in these moments of invitation father you speak to individual hearts to each heart and bring your truth to bear in our own lives we ask in Christ's name amen